All right, welcome back, everybody, to another wonderful hour of Scotch Hour. I am Noah. And I'm Jesse. All right, Jesse, so uh, I think today uh, we have a uh, a nice new Belvini here to try, the Caribbean 14-year, right? 14-year Caribbean cask, yeah. Mm. Uh, some of the reviews on this from like other people sounds like it might be pretty tasty. I'm not really sure yet, but I can't wait to try it. I'm hoping so. And then we have our uh, shout outs and get it togethers as well as our uh, restaurant review and uh, follow up with our uh, um, smart challenge being the uh, movie review of phone book or black phone. Sorry. Phone book. Phone book. book. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't seen one in a decade. (laughs) What is a phone book? (laughs) Kids may not know. What's the white pages and the yellow pages? Not that there's a lot of uh, six-year-olds watching this show, hopefully. (laughs) Otherwise, man, parent of the year does not go to your dad. (laughs) I mean, you know, it might go in correlation with the actual black phone. I mean, they're using, like, they're showing, like, rotary phones. I I mean... Even in the eighties, I, I it was kind of hard pressed to still find a rotary phone back there in the eighties. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. Scotch review. I think it's time for the Balvini Caribbean Cask 14-year single malt Scotch Highland. This little treat um, from Speyside. Should be delicious. We've had a couple Balvinis now. And the last one, the American Oak 12, was honestly uh, a surprisingly delicious. Yeah, I think that's the only one we've done on the show, though, right? Uh, on the show, yeah. Okay. So I know I know, we both have individually tried the regular Balvini 12. So, And that was, that's decent. But that American 12, that wow. was actually like... To me, that was like vanilla for days. Yeah, the American Oak 12 versus the regular 12. The regular 12 doesn't, uh, doesn't hold a match. Yeah. yeah, You got like a flamethrower versus some guy trying to heat it up with a stick and a rope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and this, this one's not part of the story series, right? It's not. Uh, 43% ABV and uh, long history here with Balvenie. All right, well, I, I think if you want to know a little bit more about the history, I don't think we'll dive too much into that, but uh, we did talk about that on the last episode when we did the American Oak one. So uh, we'll put a link in there in the in the description down below. So for those of you who don't uh, know about the links below, if you look below the video there uh, or uh, the audio, audio you're listening to, we'll put a link down there in the description area for the Balvini American Oak so that way you can hear the history about the Balvini. The biggest thing here is the master blender here, or malt master, David C. Stewart, lets this age for 14 years in the American oak casks. Um, somewhere along this process, he also takes American oak casks and ages his own special blend of rum. And when he feels like those casks are ready, he takes and empties the rum out of those oak casks and puts the 14 year into them to age and mature a little bit more at which point he pulls it out and uh, we get this the end result good looking tin mature classy 
Looks like a cigar scotch, just from the the tube. Yeah, of the, I'm not sure by the description if it will be a, a cigar type <laughs> scotch. A bottle handsome, much like the last one. Some little touches of copper. Always loved copper, even though it's one of the right. least valuable metals. <laughs> Always liked copper. Uh, Malibu used. Actually, it's so crazy that it's so non valuable when everyone's home pretty much has it in it. <laughs> it's everywhere. Water pipes. Well, like. What, like, like what crackheads and meth heads go after like in an abandoned home is they rip out the copper wiring. I don't think it. it's just the crackheads and the meth heads. I think it's any <laughs> criminal. Oh, okay. Copper's pretty valuable at that level. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good looking bottle here. Uh, yeah, man. We got to start coming up with our own scale as far as like what uh, a one to 10 from the appearance of the bottle is we've talked about, yeah, this would be a good one to bring to poker night or this would be a good one just for a friend or this one stays home with an individual. Um, nice looking wooden top. Now, that with that foil, is it like a foil that they put around it, or is it like plastic? This one it was more foil than the last, and the last one was more plastic the way it tore. But this okay. one definitely had some foil in there. Ooh, that had a nice little pop to it. It did, and there was uh, almost a smoke, a fog of uh, potential deliciousness coming out the top of the bottle. <laughs> Ooh, look at that color. That is a nice color. See, we're not racist here. <laughs> Jesse's like, shut up, Noah. <laughs> Can't say that. <laughs> Too soon? Too, Too soon. soon. <laughs> Too late? Probably. Too late. <laughs> Gonna need that after that comment. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right warp speed time <laughs> cheers, cheers. Balvini um, 14 Caribbean uh, bottle here. Um, I think it has like fantastic coloring to it. I love, I love this like uh, medium brassy copperish color that it, that it has going on there. And um, to me, that just kind of screams like that's what a scotch should look like. Other than other than like because you know the coloring that you get from the shard barrels and stuff like that. I, I actually do like that darker color as opposed to the lighter colors you get on some of those other um, scotches. Here, this one has a lot going on. There's like there's definitely some complexities going in this, and I think as it opens up more, it kind of reveals more of itself. On the nose, I get some like tropical fruit. I'm kind of thinking leaning towards maybe it might be like passion fruit or maybe other uh, types of maybe it is passion fruit with some other tropical fruits flavored into there. Um. At first, I, I put down brown sugary with, like, a rummy type of, like, uh, sweetness on the nose. But then you kind of pointed out sugar cane, and I think that's probably maybe more accurate uh, than that brown sugary, rummy kind of smell to it. 
Um, as far as the palate goes, um, what first hits me is like apple, and I get I get some apple there, and then I get mango, and I think this is um, you know how mangoes have like uh when you has like that sweet um syrupy or um and you pointed this out uh, molasses type of flavor uh, or molasses, and I said like yeah you know mangoes may have like that same type of flavor to them when you get a nice ripe mango. So I, I'm getting like that with vanilla cream. And you also pointed this out too. Oh, and I forgot to mention this. I got, you, you mentioned in the last episode about smelling cream. And you mentioned it during our tasting. <laughs> how do you <laughs> hey, smell cream? How do you smell cream? And I think you do smell cream in this one. Because <laughs> it, it has like a creamy smell. And I think about like, you know, like when you open up a thing of like Cool Whip or something. Oh, you can smell it. You could smell it. Or if you open like a bottle of like heavy, uh, heavy cream, cream, whipping yeah. cream, you can smell it. There's like a slight smell to a cream, and I think this has it. And on the finish, I'm getting some uh, definitely a vanilla cream finish. And at first, I couldn't really pinpoint if it was like oak or if it was smoke. I said smoke at first. You said oak, and I honestly believe that you might be more accurate on that oaky vanilla cream finish like i you know i'm adding my vanilla cream finish to your oak and i, I and that's kind of like when i get in this is a medium bodied uh scotch in my opinion it's not really light and it's not heavy and uh i would not like take this a poker game i wouldn't take it to like i wouldn't smoke it with a cigar but this is definitely one i would keep at home and probably share with a, another scotch connoisseur i think you could share it with uh, with a new scotch drinker too, because uh, there's a nice complexity to it. It's pretty sweet and it's not overbearing. And um, overall, I give it a thumbs up. But I really, I mean, I'd be kind of cautious on who I'd share it with. It is. It's not. It's not uh, terribly easy on the wallet. Ninety to hundred bucks a bottle. Yeah, I think it was like ninety dollars or a hundred. For me, it's interesting. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Early on with the nose of this. I'm like, how is this possible? How do you smell creamy? I think really what that is is it's that uh, vanilla sneaking through a little bit from uh, and the oak spices. But I agree 100%. This medium amber color is delightful. And I agree with you. There is something uh, not so much sexy but sensual about the color. This color is sensual. Like, like, like it is... Uh, it's it's a color that's like you are like okay so i want to know more but that's what i'm talking about that color when you look at the color of the 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 scotch so we go from uh, the color this sensual medium amber and then we go into the nose and for me it is sugarcane molasses and that sugarcane so here's you mentioned uh, citrus I'm not getting that. And it's really weird. Not so much citrus as far as fruit. You mentioned mango. And um, I'm not getting so much the mangoes or uh, really any of those fruits on the nose, at least. With the nose to me, it is a hint of molasses. And that is a pungent smell. If you ever, if you don't know what molasses is or smells like, I... uh, 
challenge you to go get a bottle of grandma's molasses, pop that thing open, smell it. It will offend your nose unless you've had COVID three times and can't smell anymore, but it will offend your nose uh, because it is so strong. It is super strong. This is the main scent and flavor in gingerbread. So um, with that, the molasses and the sugar cane, uh, but it's not offensive. Again, it's inviting. So now you've gone from uh, uh, those thigh highs to uh, the the perfect accompanying dress, if you will, uh, or the the perfect perfume. Uh, so now multiple oh, senses. I thought you could say laundry. Oh no, man! This is kid appropriate. Come on, man! What is that? Fam- family appropriate, right? <laughs> family appropriate. Sorry. Oh well, now you can talk about laundry. Laundry helps make families. <laughs> <laughs> So with the, am I wrong? Like, You're not wrong. You're not there wrong. There we go. So with that though, man, the sugar cane, the molasses, and it's crazy because we talked about this and you re-brought it up. It smells creamy. And I think that's the hint of vanilla from the American oak and uh, this, this uh, finish in Caribbean casks, uh, Caribbean rum casks. And I think that that's fun. I think that's really interesting uh, and that, that, that they emphasize that it's aged 14 years in American oak. And during this period of time, somewhere during this period of time, the master malt maker is also aging his choice of rums in other American oak. And when that is ready, slaps the scotch into the rum cask and... Voila, you get the, the next evolution. And um, I think that's where it also transcends from this molasses and cane sugar, which we talked about it. Cane sugar, get a good mojito. They probably have a cane sugar stick as far as the, the twisty stick in there. Gnaw on that a little bit. It's not something you really want to eat, but it's got a great flavor. It adds flavor um, and on uh, the nose into the palate. That's where you get this. And it transcends, uh, for me, into a light brown sugar. Again, not something super strong. um, Not that pungent molasses straight from the jar, uh, but just a hint of it. And then you get the oak spice. And I think where this scotch wins for me and I do think it's a winner, is the finish. It's this medium-bodied scotch finishing with that medium body long, just enough spice from all of those oak casks. And if there was going to be any fruit or uh, any other hint in there, to me, it is just a dash, and I don't know why but it's just a dash of lime. Somebody dropped a couple drops of lime in there, um, and that's how this finishes for me. Uh, Soft, but medium-bodied, lingering, great. Um, I think this would pair beautifully with the tiramisu. It's time for our shout-outs. All right. Uh, my shout-out. One simple shout-out. And uh, that goes to George Russell at the British Grand Prix. I haven't even watched the race, but I heard the news. And uh, lap one incident, turn one, ultimately, uh, another driver's car goes upside down flips around and george russell um takes 
and ultimately loses an opportunity to win the race, gets out of his car and goes and makes sure and helps ensure this driver is safe. Um, runs over there. He beats the marshals to help the other driver out of his car and he's ushering them over. And it's just like, you know what? Human. That's the kind of human I hope I am. I see an accident. I see someone in danger and I take the time to help them possibly survive and thrive. And he's done that. And that's not the first time he's done that. He did that in go-karting once as well for another driver where uh, his go-kart had flipped and he was upside down and George Russell helped turn his go-kart upright so he could get out of it. And uh, again, just a great job showing the world what a human and what a uh, a great person can be. I would would say a, what a man can be and should be, but I think any person can and should be that kind of individual. Uh, sorry, you didn't get to continue the race. That's the tragedy is he would have done great things, George. Uh, I think you are absolutely <laughs> the future of Mercedes. Noah's hunting hares and flies or something over here, but uh, George Russell, you are the future of Mercedes. And I actually think you... Uh, you're going to give the other great driver to these next few years a run for their money. So cheers. I really loved seeing the piece I saw. I'm going to give a shout out to you. Uh Oh, how did I do now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to give a shout out to you for being a, like a good father. Like, uh, obviously, you know, I know you and your, you you know, your family and everything like that. And you've been able to take a good quality time, uh, being a, a father. I think that's awesome. Like you took your son out driving, uh, multiple times this weekend so that way he can get hit get from his uh driving permit to his actual driver's license and so i think it's awesome that uh you took him out a few times and drove like hours you know hours and hours around and and uh you know i think it's just awesome so i just want to give you a shout out for being a good parent Thank you. And Aiden, if you watch this in the future, you only scared me once. I think uh, so far we've driven about eight hours together. And I think you'll probably also for a while at least uh, remember the one time you scared me now. And that was just at the yield at the roundabout. My only get it together is, uh, man, they've done a good job hiding the fact that they haven't fixed the baby formula shortage. But... Uh, get it together again, manufacturers. Are they doing? And, Using uh, chalk or something? No, no. Uh, they've flown in a bunch in from Europe, which used to be illegal for Americans to do. Um, but really, I mean, you just think about it as a having been a, a parent and having being a parent and having had an infant, a starving infant is the worst thought literally the worst thought and it happens all over the world and it happens all over the time and it's tragic and we're usually pretty blessed here in America not to have to worry about that but I really genuinely feel for uh, these mothers and I've experienced some at work crying because they can't get formula for their infants and um, that is just a terror like I was blessed not to have to ever worry about that Uh, so um, yeah that's my one continue to get together having not done what is in in, uh, we're supposed to be the greatest nation on the planet, right? And we don't have baby formula. And I, I think that if nothing else, I design. Really, yeah. If nothing else though, that really questions, what does it mean to be great? Not this whole transition that Biden has going on. All right. So my, uh, my get it together goes to the freaking pack 12. Oh man. How do you like let USC and UCLA go to the big 10 and not even see it coming? 
and now it just puts the whole Pac-12 into a frenzy. And one of these like great conferences in college is soon to be gone. Um, so we'll see what happens here with the whole new college realignments and conferences. But just to think, like a, a conference with a hundred years plus of rich tradition in football and other in other sports is is soon to be like no more uh, because they couldn't plan or foresee the future. Wild Goose Saloon, yes. Actually, I I thought the place looked pretty cool. I mean, we went there during lunchtime. Um, it's closed on Mondays. Uh, it is kind of like a concert venue. So if you actually go in there, you can see like a big, huge stage on the inside and a bunch of big screen TV. So I think you could actually see uh, if they had like a sporting event there going on. It'd be pretty a pretty cool place. Uh, the back patio, though, that had it kind of going on there, too. Like they had like this big, huge like AstroTurf area with like outdoor uh, like a little concert area too there, um, where I think it's more like acoustic or single songwriters that, that play outside. And uh, they also have like a, a bunch of cornhole areas, and they have a cornhole tournament there every week on Wednesdays. Um, so I thought it was kind of cool. Um, the ambiance there, I'm like, honestly, if I'm just going to go there for like a, for a concert or something like that, like for a first date or something, that would be okay. But um, I'm not sure that's really a first date worthy, but it's definitely like a friend hangout place worthy. Um, so the, uh, the manager is actually pretty cool for the lunchtime. Yeah. He, uh, gave us a discount. On, yeah. The GM, uh, he was pretty cool. Cause he gave us a discount on our appetizer because the appetizer, appetizer came out the same time as our, as our meal did. And, uh, the meal was good. I mean, we had these, uh, nachos. I forgot what the nachos were called, but they were, they're pretty, pretty good. And, uh, I had the uh, BLT, and uh, that was actually pretty excellent. The, yeah, the, the uh, chips and salsa slash nachos were good, man. The, I mean, not the red flavor or red colored chips add any flavor, but they're fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. And then my side was like these uh, these barbecue beans or whatever they were. It just tastes like beans coming out of the Van de Camp. Uh, can and nothing wrong with camp uh, pork and beans because I love those so uh, but I thought my meal was pretty good I enjoyed it um, I'd give the place I mean I, I think it's a solid like 7.5 the service was good maybe maybe a little bit off a little bit just because of the food didn't come in on time but the, the waiter was really was pretty attentive uh, the GM was even more attentive asking us you know about our meal um, the one thing I did not like though about the place is that they gave, uh, and it makes sense too though, because we were sitting outside in the outside patio. This was going to be my one thing. Is that they gave us beer in plastic cups, but it does make sense because they don't want glass being broken on the patio or getting into the actual turf. So I kind of understand that. Wild Goose Saloon, the Wild Goose Saloon, just like the Balvenie, the McKellen, the, <laughs> uh, you know what? The Wild Goose Saloon, I thought for me, it was actually kind of a hit. Now, I'm not going to say I love the hipster or the millennial scenes. This definitely fit into that arena for me, 
but I dug it. Like for me, it was great. And yes, the first thing I'll say is if you go inside, you eat and drink inside, you get your beer in a nice glass. And it was a little bit of a turnoff to see the plastic glass coming my way as our waiter brought our beers in those plastic glasses. I'm like, oh, really? Come on, man. This is like the one literally like it's the derailer it's the uh, the turn off but um the setting was fun we were there lunchtime recently open for lunch they haven't been open for lunch for a really long time so it wasn't quite popping it wasn't totally happening at dinner and evenings that place is booming i think that's why they're trying to grow the business i think the gm has a great uh, idea i agree with you the nachos uh, I call them chips and salsa. That's not fair. They were truly nachos. They were fun. I love colored chips, by the way, everyone who got rid of them. I mean, if, unless it's because you're using fake dyes and unhealthy colors, uh, that's a good reason. But otherwise, they're fun. And the red chips added a lot for me. Uh, something very interesting is that normally when I drink out of a plastic cup and I get my beer, it doesn't taste as good. And I will admit, this is the one time where I'm like, damn, this was a good beer. I don't know if that was a fresh tap, uh, but that was one of the best beers I've had in a while. Uh, So cheers there to the Wild Goose Saloon because your beer was fantastic, even in the plastic cup. Uh, And then I had the Monte Cristo. And I was a little worried at first because it came out and it was not your typical square Monte Cristo. It was on a round roll that they had sliced and it looked a little funky because of that, but it was delicious. I got zero complaints. They had drizzled the berry flavoring, the jam, if you will, across the top as opposed to giving you a giant bowl of it, which again, at first I was like, I'm not so sure about this. At the end of the day, it was perfect. It was flawless on that Monte Cristo. Uh, The best Monte Cristo, I would say, I've probably had in eight years. The last one was at this little joint in Aurora. I think it's called Fat Brothers or Fat Boys. Uh, And it's at, mm, I think it's at Alameda in Havana. Um, and that place has a damn, or at least used to have a damn good Monte Cristo. Uh, but otherwise for me, the atmosphere for lunch was probably a seven knowing what it's like in the evening. If you want it hopping, it's an eight, the outside area, um, Again, fun, especially if you want to go play some cornhole. Although, what the hell's the deal with cornhole? How does someone become a positive cornhole player? I have no idea. I don't even know how it's even on ESPN. <laughs> Dude, it's killing me. Like, it literally is killing me. Like, I love throwing my bag, too. But, <laughs> just saying, I don't know how this becomes such you a like sport. like throwing your bag in the hole? Yeah, just saying. <laughs> I don't understand how this becomes such a sport that uh, it's so big at a place like this. But, it, obviously, it's fun to play. It is fun to play. Spilling your beer is a great way for them to get you to spill half your beer on their astroturf. They don't want no glass on. Uh, buying more beer. Uh, that is the one thing I would say is the beer wasn't cheap. The place was fun. Yeah, it was. It was good. It is tough, though. I can't give it more than a 7.5. Uh, again, the atmosphere, the environment, right in that 7 to 8, depending on the time of day. Uh, the food for me, same thing, 7 to 8. Uh, first date worthy. That You know, you brought up a good point. Would I intentionally take a first date there for lunch? Probably not. For dinner when it's happening and everything's booming? Yeah. Okay, the smarter challenge was to do a movie review on the black phone. Um, 
So I'll just kind of like just lay out the reason why I even saw this movie in the first place is because obviously uh, me being a tinfoil hat conspiracy guy more so than you, I kind of like I'm, I hang out in these like different uh, chat rooms and stuff and just read like different theories. And um, one of the guys said that the uh, like, hey, definitely go check out the black phone. Uh, if you know anything about like Podesta and like, uh, you know, um, adrenochrome and uh, kidnappings and stuff like that, this would be a good movie for you to go see. So I went and saw the movie and I thought it's pretty creepy. I mean, it takes place in Denver. We live in in the Denver metropolitan, yeah, Denver metro area. So I'm like, hey, this might be a fun, uh, smarter challenge to go see the movie and do a movie review. Um, so that's kind of like my first take of why I'm to go see the movie. Uh, I think uh, my first impressions, Ethan Hawke, he isn't afraid to do some Dude. questionable uh, characters and uh, dark questionable characters, I, I should say. And I think he, he does play a very creepy dude. He played the role brilliantly. Ethan Hawke, please come on the show. Even if you won't have a scotch with us, we'll revisit this smarter challenge. You were amazing, as you often are. Yeah, I think he did a fantastic job. Um, you know, um, and I think, I don't know, I don't know how you want to go about talking about this movie or doing the review. Um, what was your kind of first impression? So at first, like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. At first, I was like, all right, man, this is a smarter challenge. I'm up for a good horror movie. No big deal. I do like Ethan Hawke, though, and we had talked about that previously where I'm like, Ethan Hawke, even when he plays a good character, he often plays a dark character, and I love that because one of the things that I think is absolutely true in life is you don't get good without even evil, which is, for me, like that's my biggest thing there is in, okay, now you got the Buddhist monks, right? So... Right. I mean, like, we know the Pope and the Catholics did their evil, and then they can do their good. But with the Buddhists, they don't often get this opportunity to do the evil, at least not publicly, at least not that I'm aware of. They start out young, and they're always great. So I don't know how, unless there's this other piece that I just am not, I I can't fathom yet, that's a possibility, um, how they get to the point of what I do believe is, man, once you have seen what your dark is that you're capable of your dark, then you can actually appreciate your light, what you bring to others. Um, and I think as a kid, I remember doing some terrible things to other kids. Uh, I remember throwing one girl's lunch on a roof of a house. Trying to, <laughs> nah, dude, I was flirting with her, right? I'm like, that's eight, a way to flirt with I'm her. Eight years old, and I'm showing off to my friends, and I'm getting her attention. That's flirting when you're eight years old, man. You don't know any better. At least I didn't know any better. And I threw her lunch. Did you get a date out of it? Oh, hell no. Uh, but <laughs> I do remember still to this day her name, Brandy Quinones. I think she was like my first crush. <laughs> Literally, I think she was my first crush. Um, and I'm sure she went on to do great things. Again, I was like eight years old, dude, maybe nine. Like I was in like third grade, right? <laughs> so so is this advice that you give to younger people not to throw uh, lunch pills up on top no, of the roof? No, but I remember doing that to the point where I literally am conscious of, okay, 
Am I intentionally doing something to get attention that will pull away from the quality of somebody else's life? And I am I'm very aware of that now, whereas I wasn't before then. Um, what I will say is, cheers to you, Brandy. You went straight to my house and told my mom, who then promptly made you a lunch and uh, let me know that was not cool. And you know what's really crazy? Is it wasn't the fact that I negatively impacted Brandy. And that that was a shitty thing to do. Like I was, I was an asshole. Um, what I learned from was, man, the person I actually impacted wasn't the person involved at all. It was my mom, and she had to make another lunch, and then she felt terrible that, and I felt terrible that I'm like I'm supposed to represent her, and I'm like, damn it, man, I just represented the one uh, person that I cherish most on this planet poorly made her look bad. You're talking about the butterfly effect. Well, yeah, there's a lot that goes into that, but I was just like, damn it, Jesse, never do that again. And so, so to this day, it's one of those things where like, no, uh, if I think of anything, like that's one of the things I actually think about. I also think about when I was in high school and my mom woke me up, it was our senior year, and I said some terrible words to her. And as soon as we got to school, I went to Dean Rory's office and I'm like, mom, I'm so sorry I said those things. <laughs> and my mom was laughing, as was the dean's assistant. Like, you're really calling your mom apologizing for that? Most high school kids just say that, and then they say it again the next day. Now, I said it once and apologized because you don't treat your mom that way. You don't. That, I was disrespectful. Um, but, again, I think that's part of the EQ. Not everyone's got it. But um, with that, you got the good and the evil, and Ethan Hawke displays the evil so well that I think he also probably has the opposite side where he's got the good and the evil. And I love what he did in this movie. Um, again, I wasn't super excited when we first went to go see it. I was like, okay, this will be an interesting, smarter challenge. After the movie, though, I'm like, damn, I was laughing in the movie, probably at inappropriate times always, but I was laughing in the movie. I absolutely enjoyed the movie. It was a little suspenseful. Uh, best movie from that standpoint that I've seen in decades. And uh, I also really appreciated um, the fact that it was reminiscent, not just of a movie that was in the 70s slash 80s in, in Midwestern America, um, but that it was reminiscent of those movies like Stand By Me. Yeah, I guess it was, huh? Uh, totally, man. Okay. I mean, oh, and if you guys have known this already, it's spoiler alerts. Okay, we're probably going to be talking more about this movie here. So yeah, we're going to wreck it for you if you haven't seen it and you want to. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I thought was kind of like interesting, we have a couple, we have like a dad who worked at Rocky Flats. So if you grew up in, you know, in the 80s slash 90s, you know about Rocky Flats building the nuclear triggers for the for the for the bombs and stuff like that, and and then later on they stored nuclear waste there and all kinds of stuff. There's, you know, I, I remember like like uh, I growing up in uh, in Arvada, and so that was really close to uh, Rocky Flats, and supposedly this took place in like North Denver, but. I found it kind of hard to kind of pinpoint like where they're trying to talk about because it seemed like it could be like what like like northern part of like uh, like Westminster ish uh, slash. Let's face it, it's going to be closer to Rocky Flats than not if that's yeah. where the dad worked. Yeah, if dad worked at Rocky Flats and he's a single dad, I'm thinking it's probably like Arvada, Westminster, that Broomfield type of area. Uh, could be wrong though, but you know, hey, um, but. Uh, 
the daughter there, she has uh, she has dreams that come true, so she can see visions and stuff like that. And I think her like her character, I think she by far steals the show. You think so? Well, yeah, because her I character, think she did phenomenal. It's either Ethan Hawke or her who do the best job in the whole movie. So he's talking about Madeline McCrow, who plays Gwen. And I agree with you. At the beginning, she absolutely owns it. However, I think there's a, a, a complicated system of layers by the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because like her character, like when she talks about like when she's talking to the police officers, telling them, you know, you f- you uh, fucking fart knockers oh or my something God. like that. that One of my hilarious. favorite times in the movie when I'm laughing hysterically and there's like this giant family in the road <laughs> in front of us. And I don't think they appreciated that at all. But you know what? You've got to realize that that's real and that's honest. And I was okay with it. Now, interestingly, tangent alert, she wasn't being disrespectful to anyone who hadn't been disrespectful to her. And exactly. I loved the fact that she's like, here's how you're treating me. I'll treat you just the same. <laughs> and she's like, what, you think I oh kidnapped these people, you fucking idiots? <laughs> it was brilliant. Oh, yeah. Because it was showing them the same level of respect, which is also really interesting because back then, yeah, what's going to happen? You're going to get beat. Nowadays, exactly. you're going to go to jail if you beat your kid in most cases. And I, feel, I don't remember who the actor is that plays the dad in there, but I know he's been in other movies. And his character, he kind of plays the same character in every movie almost, uh, which seems kind of like a, a fragile, insecure person. Broken. Broken. And uh, he was broken because his wife died because she had dreams, and those dreams led her to kill kill herself or get that's the impression i got and so his main concern with his daughter is like your dreams are just dreams they're not real things they're not going to come true um so don't don't believe in them and anytime like she talks about the dreams and her dad kind of like gives her a big ass whooping yeah which is tragic and he's also an alcoholic so I assume he was an alcoholic with the, with the with him passing out with the beers in his hand and having like her threatening him by trying to break the vodka bottle. Yeah, definitely dependent. Definitely dependent. Yeah. Um, but um, as the story develops, oh man, it does get, like the first half is all about like kind of like getting to the point. Like you hear about the grabber and. All this stuff, and I, th- I think we kind of talked about this too. Growing up in in the eighties, and I know I've always said like, don't say what our age are here on this on this show, but obviously, I think people who watch this enough know that we are. We, you were alive then, yeah. Uh, but growing up in the eighties, <laughs> god damn, you're old. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, growing up in the eighties, though, I don't. I mean, I remember having like, you know, I'm like, hey, mom, I'm gonna go out and play, and then. All she'd ask, like, well, who are you going to go play with? Not, like, where I was going, but more, like, who are you going to go play with? And I remember going, like, on long bike rides, uh, right walking, with you, exactly. walking to school and stuff like that, and uh, and uh, having things like, hey, make sure you're home by the time the streetlights come on, that type of stuff. And, um, and to my, you know, and I was like, you know, I don't really remember, like, a bunch of, like, kids being kidnapped and stuff. And then you made one big, huge point, and I'll let you bring that up. 
Yeah. So as a kid, what I remember is I did see on some telephone poles stapled to them some missing children signs, but the bigger one was two milk cartons. You see a dozen cartons of milk and you saw six different kids' faces. And I remember shopping with my mom once at one time. I lost my wallet, but I was like turning all the milk cartons so I could see all the missing kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I I forgot about that growing up. Like, yeah, there used to be missing kids on milk cartons all the time. Yeah. But it made sense why they stopped because I didn't want to damn buy no missing kid milk. It made you feel bad to drink the milk. Like, should I be looking for this kid? And right. that's an interesting piece of humanity as well because it brings us uh, in this world circle of like George Russell stopped and did what was right. And so many people stop and do what's right and so many don't. And as we get back to the movie, you know, it's like, who's doing the right thing? And I think this is where, when you think about who steals the show or doesn't, you talked about uh, Madeline McCrow playing Gwen, the young girl. She's the one person in this movie doing right, going out of her way to do right. And it's not just because it's her brother. It's because it's right. And you see that because before her brother gets abducted, again, spoiler alerts throughout, uh, before her brother gets abducted, she's doing the right thing. She was. She was telling her. her she's telling a friend that her brother is not going to be found, and you know, and and she's telling her why and like what she saw in her dreams and stuff. And she and, gets in trouble for telling she, yeah. what she saw in her dream, which was ultimately truth. And it's tragic, but it's it, real. It is tragic, and it is real. <laughs> I totally agree with that. And you, you know, it, like the one cool part, like uh, I think uh, that they mentioned in here. And I kind of wish, you know, like, I know my, I have a brother as well, uh, but there's like eight years difference between him and I. So I didn't, we didn't ever have, like, growing up, have like a tight, like a tight uh, kinship, I guess, until we've gotten older. But uh, they, there's a mention about like how, like, the brother and sister have like a tight friendship together or whatever. And I think that was really cool. It was totally cool. And she, like, comes to her brother's rescue and beats, like, hits some kid over the head with a rock and stuff to protect her brother and stuff. So I thought that was kind of, like, that's kind of a cool part there. It was cool. And the other tryst there, if you will, is that the mom wasn't in the picture. So that's part of why their alcoholic dad and their absent mother led them to be more tightly... Uh, tragically, in some ways, codependent. Uh, but I want to talk about a couple other fun facts about this movie. Okay. Joe Hill wrote the story that ultimately becomes The Black Phone. Joe Hill has done many great horror stories. This one intended to be a movie. Joe Hill's dad is Stephen King. What? Oh, right. (laughs) How awesome is that? So what I love about this piece is that you don't get many writers who kids can, whose kids also write or can write, let alone do write. But I thought it was great. So you got Stand By Me almost gives this feeling of Joe Hill's version, the black phone. But so one of the things when, you know, Stephen King speaks and he talks about how what gave him inspiration is he finds something that's actually creepy to him in life. And I think that's real. I think great authors, you got Hemingway and all these people who have these life experiences, good and bad, and they write about that. And then I, uh, you, you know, embellish. HP Lovecraft. Yeah, you embellish upon these things. But with that, 
Joe Hill wrote this story because his parents' creepy basement was just like that. It was like a goddamn maze. That's what got him to write this story. Really? Yes. That's kind of funny because you remember in our a uh, couple episodes ago, um, we talked about how one of the big influences for Stephen King was H.P. Lovecraft, and he like he and his big thing about H.P. Lovecraft was he wrote like ninety percent real ninety to ninety nine ninety re- to ten yeah ninety to ninety percent reality with anywhere between one to ten percent. Uh, uh, Far-fetchedness. Right. It is interesting. Uh, It just like, it it really, uh, it's almost inspiring. It's inspiring because it's like, yeah, man, do what you love. Uh, Use your real life experiences. Grow, shrink, adjust, or stay your course based on what you're experiencing. And and that's kind of weird, too, because not only did, like, Joe Hill write that, right? And he's like, his dad is Stephen King. Stephen King! But they also got a director that... Has directed a lot of like horror movies, like uh, it's, it's Scott Dickerson. He did uh, Deliver Us from Evil, Sinister, uh, Hellraiser, Hellraiser Inferno. I think the Hellraisers were his biggest wins, by the way, yeah. just from what I saw. <laughs> and but I think one of his biggest wins is probably Doctor Strange, but that doesn't that's not really on the horror side. So I was going to kind of you know, it's interesting you bring that up though, because it was intended to be on the horror side as was the second one that he didn't get elected to do. They changed the director because it was intended to be more of a horror styled film. And that's not where Marvel wanted to take it. Mm, that wouldn't make sense. Um, so that that's a big that was a big piece there. I didn't even know about the the writer Joe Hill, dude. But you bring up Doctor Strange, and I love that because when you see, uh, you know, the multiverse, Doctor Strange in the multiverse, it is interesting because you can absolutely see in the writing and the storyline how that probably should have been, not just could have been a horror movie. Yeah, I think they probably should have kept the same director on that one. Yeah, because it was creepy enough at times where they just had to go, you know, they've already gone a mile. They have to go another half of a centimeter uh, at 1.2 millimeters or 12 millimeters to turn up the creepiness. That's all they had to do. (laughs) It was so great. Um, But, yeah, the black phone Let's get to the the third big actor. So the second one, Mason Thanes, uh, plays Finney Blake, uh, the boy who gets uh, abducted. But let's get to the the bigger one, Ethan Hawke. Dude, Ethan Hawke with a mask. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, y- you know, like, Ethan Hawke, he kind of, like, comes out like, I'm a magician. And he just plays this, like, really weird, eccentric, creepy dude. And... Like the visions, like the the sister has of him, you just like, dude, that guy, whoever that guy is, he's like fucking creepy as fuck. And <laughs> he uh, already dropped so many f bombs, so we're. He reminded me though of the Joker. Ooh, that is a that is a good Jack Nicholson's yeah. the Joker. He reminded me the way he was like, I'm just a clown looking for work. <laughs> Yeah, and then, you know, like, his mask was actually, like, a two-piece mask, so he could, like, have it full on. And actually, I think he had, like, different bottom pieces, too, to go with the top piece. Um, But, yeah, the way he did it, though, uh, I think Ethan Hawke did an incredible job. He he made it seem... 
I don't know. The guy just he made, he played a very creepy and scary kind of guy. If like if you're a kid, I'd be kind of like scared out of my mind. If I was in that situation. Yeah, he played his role well. Now, here's the thing, and you brought it up. Was he really the star of the show? He did his job so well. I think he could have done a better job. Uh, he could. I don't think he could have either. But he's not the star of the show. I think it's really one of the, the kids. I think really honestly, <laughs> the star of the show is supposed to be the kid who plays uh, Finn. Finny Blake, Finn, yes, Thanes, uh, Mason Thanes. But I don't think, like, I don't think he did enough to carry the position as being a star. I honestly think either the sister did a better job or even Hawk did a better job. I mean, here's where it gets tough. You start out the movie, Finney's sitting there, baseball pitcher, potential superstar, almost has a perfect game, and then throws the one home run right at the end. Clinches the game for the opposing team. Um, real life. Like but that guy, life. But that guy plays an intricate part, the guy who hits a home run. Oh, well, to an extent. <laughs> I mean, is it worth dying for? <laughs> in this case, yes. Worth dying for? I guess in this case, only, yes. Only if you're Finney. <laughs> <laughs> but Finney's character then is this uh, very meek he has potential, tons of potential, but he's so meek. And then through uh, the first half of the story, the first third of the story, he's meeting all these different characters and having these different experiences. And he meets another one who's just the opposite, the opposite of me, probably too overbearing. He's like this little wannabe Chuck Norris karate master and kicks the hell out of people trying to beat up Finny. It's the Mexican beautiful. kid. <laughs> Which, in the movie, they call him a beaner. So. They call him the beaner. I'm not going to call him anything but the beaner, because that's what they call him. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, his role is great. But along there goes Finney. Finney's showing this um, transitioning role with his sister at this time. And then Finney gets abducted. And that's where it gets interesting, because Finney really has to learn and grow quickly here. And... All these other badass boys failed. And part of that is this piece where was it because Finney was meek at the beginning and had to transition to be strong? Or was it because he was always potentially going to be the only one of these other kids that got killed? Um, they weren't well balanced. They had no potential. And he was. He was patient enough. They, they did forewarn him. Don't go. It's a trap. I think there's a. I think the, a lot plays into this. I think he had to learn patience with his dad being an alcoholic and beating them. I think he probably inherited some of the paranormal type of things in order to hear the other kids when the phone rang. Because uh, obviously the daughter, or his sister, picked up the paranormal type of abilities uh, from the mom, and I think he picked up some, but he had it probably so. It was probably so. Uh, so like very deep in his mind that he kind of ignored any type of like any kind of like abilities that he had. Um, but I think those abilities kind of came to um, when he was kidnapped to, like I said, like hear the phone ring and then hear the people talking on the other side of it and be able to see them on occasion. Um, the thing there is, it's interesting because, with the seeing them, I think that was more for us as an audience than it was for him. 
You think so? Because he, I think he saw the kid floating there when he picked up the phone and started talking to him. Uh, yeah, but I think that that was more for uh, us. Um, I think he was already having his own experience. But then there's also this other pieces. Is that really happening? Or is this more intentionally be like, hey, use your smarter self. Use your conscience. Use that voice in your head. Don't be stupid. And I think, if anything, what this story to me is really telling him um, is be smarter. And here's another thing I just I just now thought of. The other five boys that were kidnapped and killed, they were kind of like mentors to him. And, you know, when you go through and you meet your mentors, they tell you certain things to go do, and you, and you go do them, and you may not find success right away. So you, you, you meet one mentor, they tell you what to do, you try doing it, you don't find success, and you fail. Then you find another mentor, they tell you what to do, they address some things, and then you fail again. And he, he basically, each one of these kids, yeah, there's five of them, all the, all mentors, each five of them, um, well, except for maybe the fifth, but the first four, he tried what they suggested and he failed. But then he was able to put together the advice that he got from all five of them. And it was kind of cool how they put it all together in the movie. But like, as, if we're talking about this in real life, look at all the mentors that you've had and we, regardless of whether or not you've, if you found success or not, just because they gave you advice and you went and tried it and you failed, if you take that information with the next information, with the next information, with the next information, the accumulation of it all could lead to your actual potential. And I think in this case it did for Finn. For Finn, yes. But I think that's the piece is... I think this is again, it's just his subconscious telling him, what did you learn from each of these individuals to take you to the next level? Yeah. And I think it's kind of cool. And I think it can, you can do it. It's totally cool. You can see it absolutely in real life. The struggle is most people forget about all the other pieces. Um, Don't consider all the pieces when they're coming up with their final solution. Yeah, exactly. I think mean, it's just so cool how they just how he's able to take each one of those and he filled out four of them, puts them all together, and then he becomes successful and and it's escaping like, and and then he becomes like the total badass at school and he you know, <laughs> it's funny because like you know before he gets kidnapped he gets his his lab partner and his and his sister's like oh Donna oh Donna oh Donna can you be my lab partner Donna and then all of a sudden like he's like yeah I'm a total badass he sits next to her at the end of the movie which is I think totally like, different oh. but so this is as we go to the beginning of our smarter challenge and commenting about this like i think i wish in life i had had a few more of these terrible experiences and that's one of the things that that i don't know if it was so i don't much, know if i want to kidnap terrible but no sure. right <laughs> and i don't know that it was so much interviews with joe hill or anything else but um different pieces that came out were this is the kind of story you get um the potential success stories when you deal with people who really went through real adversity as a youth and overcame it it's not that they become a future problem it's that they overcome that adversity and that's what you see at the end of this the stand by me so to speak uh, the black phone the updated joe hill versions of stephen king's original um i thought the movie was absolutely brilliant and again it's interesting because it actually inspired me. Um, I enjoyed it so much. 
And that's weird. Well, who the hell gets inspired by a horror movie, right? Probably more than one person. <laughs> but for me, I'm like, yeah. Hopefully you're not getting inspired to go kill and kidnap a kid. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I don't want a black fan. Uh, but I'm really just like, man, really consider what did you learn? Um, what can you take away from all of your previous experiences to do great things? I agree with that. Um, I will mention this here as a public service announcement here. Um, it may not be appropriate for young children, um, but obviously if you're a parent, that's up to you to decide. Um, it's a very real and very uh, um, touchy subject about uh, kids being kidnapped. So in, in, in essence, maybe it might be something for you to have your kids watch so that way they c- that they can become more aware of their surroundings and stuff. But at the same time, I'm not really sure if it's really meant for kids to see either. That that just that's my PSA. Just as an adult, uh, as a parent, just try try to make the best judgment for your own child. But I think there's positives to this movie to have your child watch it. And I think there's some negatives. But you're a parent. I don't know. It was pretty much on the edge, man. It was a little. It was a uh, man. It is questionable, just because. On one side, you don't want your kid to ever have to deal with any of that. And on the other side, it's like, man, this is why we don't talk to strangers. <laughs> you see a freak in a black van with his you run away. You run and black balloons. Yeah, you don't ask him, are those black balloons? You run and scream and cry for help because there's something wrong. <laughs> um, how- you know, obviously, I do kind of remember this as a kid, too. I remember, like... Uh, there's always being like, don't take uh, candy from strangers and stuff like that, right? <laughs> Weird. They were always in van. Don't talk to strangers. I always remember that type of stuff. Yeah. So it must have been like a pretty big thing back then too when we were kids. But I mean, honestly, I think I think there's a kind of like it's a it's a fine line right there. And like I said, I'm not a parent, so I don't know. But to me, it seemed like there'd be a fine line. Like. Is there something to be learned from a child watching this? Maybe I probably wouldn't have like a like a seven or eight or nine year old watch it, but maybe someone who's like I don't know, maybe in their tweens years or something like that. That might it might be beneficial for them to watch it. Again, it comes down to what can they comprehend or what's just going to scar them. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, I watched The Exorcist when I was like seven, so uh, seeing the head turn around, so that kind of freaks me. About that. What did you learn from The Exorcist? <laughs> that it scared the living shit out of me. So, and then I couldn't hear the freaking Exorcist theme music until I was like in my like late twenties. Oh, dude, it's without scared, freaking me out. It scared me too. You know, the only thing it warned me though was because as I had to go down that hallway to my bedroom and my sister's bedroom was there and she made a noise. I'm like, my sister is the devil. <laughs> Jennifer? Yeah, oh yeah, no. Lily was on my mom's lap watching the movie. I'm like, I can't go to bed. Then I'm like, I'm not going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Felt like Billy damn Madison in the water boy. Okay, mommy. <laughs> All right. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about the movie? Because we're, we're kind of coming up at. Uh, oh, man, it was great. It was good. It was really great entertainment. And again, I know this is really uh, uh, weird to hear, um, but it was absolutely inspiring to me. And that's crazy. And not to do any bad things, but to do good things. 
I agree. I think uh, it is inspiring to do some great things. I think you can find some positives in this movie here. And um, it, it has, like, it's a good thriller. It's not, like, a super horror story. I remember the first time I saw it, there's, like, there's only two situations where it kind of caught me slightly bit off guard, and I and I jumped a little bit. Um, so I think you can get some little bit, like, jump thrills in there and, and whatnot, but... Overall, I think it's a great movie. I don't think it's getting like the, as much of attention as it probably should in the theaters. But um, I do agree with the person who initially inspired me to go see the movie. If you know anything about like you know all the tra- uh, human trafficking and all that stuff going on with kids and stuff and Podesta and the emails and and uh, the pizza uh, Pizza Gate stuff, uh, it, it is kind of interesting to go see that movie. I don't know if this movie ties into any of those. The guy buried people in the basement across the street. He wasn't trafficking. He wasn't drawing no, blood or anything else. He wasn't drawing blood or trafficking. I, I do agree with that part, but I do think there's some some correlations that a person could pull from it. Um, but it's still creepy enough to enjoy and get something out of it. I think that's its win, though, is that it's uh, real enough to make sure people understand. It doesn't matter if you want to believe in a conspiracy or not. There are sick people out there, and this kind of stuff does happen. And this is a very realistic, non-conspiracy uh, theory example of, yeah. My brother's uh, an idiot, but he's my idiot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was a great line. It was a great line for the movie. It was. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, I would advise seeing this movie. I think uh, I think any kind of, I, I think it's, it's worth the watch. Um, yeah. I 100% agree. I like, uh, I'm, I, if I don't buy it, because I love my digital hard copies, if I don't buy it, I'll probably at least go see it in the theater again. But I imagine buying this one. All right, cool. Uh, anything you want to say to the people before we get out of here? Drink responsibly. Enjoy your Balvini 14 year Caribbean cask. Uh, go see uh, a black phone and uh, give us uh, your feedback. Thank you. And then what's the the next uh, scotch? All right. The next scotch. We're going one letter back. The Ardmore. Not to be confused with the Ardcore. Ardcore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is another single malt scotch whiskey uh, that we're going to try. This one is reportedly, even though it's a Highland single malt, reportedly more like an Isla malt uh, where it's going to be smoky and peaty. So we're looking forward to trying Who doesn't like a good Isla? <laughs> <laughs> I love a good Isley. Uh, but we're looking forward to trying this one. And the smarter challenge is the best of Ridley Scott. Top three oh. Ridley Scott movies and why. Um, and Ridley Scott, as we mentioned last week, did a lot, including Blade Runner, uh, which probably could be, you know, maybe in that. And that's another tie into HP Lovecraft. Yeah, there's just a, a ton of interesting stuff. So we're uh, going to find out some more about that. But the Ardmore Single Malt Scotch Whiskey and the best of Ridley Scott. Awesome. I can't wait to talk about that so, uh, that subject next week. And um, uh, for everyone that's out there, thank you once again. For those of you who watch us on YouTube and Rumble, and for those of you who listen uh, to us on uh, Google Podcast, uh, Podbean, Spotify, um, I are I heart radio and any of the other uh, audio places that you can pick us up at. We do greatly appreciate it. 
And uh, if you do want to uh, partake and become a patron member, if you do look below in the description, uh, you'll see the uh, Podbean patron. Uh, you become a member for as little as $1. And uh, we are planning to do another movie theater rental uh, when we do that. In order to get priority access uh, to be invited, it, obviously, first of all, you got to live in the Denver metropolitan area. Uh, we do apologize for those who do not. Um, but the way to get priority uh, access to that is to A, become a uh, co-host on our show. B, become a patron member. And with that, uh, I will say cheers to you guys. And uh, please drink responsibly. And hopefully you guys have a wonderful week. Life is great. Oh, life is great. Scotchman. We hope you enjoyed this evening's episode of Scotch Hour. If you did, please like, share, and subscribe. Also, if you have not done so already, please become a patron member with memberships starting as low as $1 a month. Thank you, and hopefully you have a wonderful evening.